Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from Seed Camp. Uh, second day in New York with our U.S. trip. And today I have the privilege of being in the offices of Valor Ventures. And I'm going to get a lesson on how to pronounce it correctly from the guys shortly. But Valor is a, a, a fund that we're very, very fond of because they have a thesis that involves the rest of the world. And I want to let the guys uh, share that a little bit more in their words. Uh, but with me I have Andrew McCormick and James Fitzgerald of Valor Ventures. Maybe what we can do is, Andrew, if you want to just uh, maybe talk a little bit about um, your background, how you got here. Um, you know, I know that you guys have been working together uh, for a while, so maybe if we just start from the very beginning. Sure. So um, I uh, graduated from Penn 98, worked uh, for a startup in Philadelphia that was an erstwhile competitor to PayPal, uh, and then spent uh, almost a year with Yahoo and their Latin America group and uh, was lucky enough to uh, see a business development job advertised at PayPal and um, applied for it. And uh, after about, I don't know, three or four months of, of chasing the guys to give me an in-person interview in Palo Alto, I, they finally relented. And when I showed up, they, uh, the HR guy asked if uh, I would consider taking a job as, as the CEO's assistant. And uh, that seemed like a, an even better deal. So that's how I started working for Peter in 2001 at PayPal. Um, and it's been an interesting ride since then, to say the least. I've always more or less worked for him directly on new business initiatives or personal projects that he has that you know weren't necessarily part of uh, another team's remit. Uh, and, you know, one of those things uh, led me to be in New Zealand uh, quite a bit back in 2009. And uh, that's really how Valor got started. James and I started working together even before that, uh, where, you know, I'll let him jump in. But he was Peter's general counsel and, and COO and in charge of not letting people like me blow up the whole business. Oh, I see. Okay, so you were in charge of making sure everybody was a straight line. But what's interesting was that your career is actually not a straight line. You you went you were in law for a large part of, of your background, and then now you're in venture. How how did that happen? How did you how did you make that transition? What 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 made you want to do that? Yeah, sure. So um, it's a bit of my background. I went to UCLA Law School, then um, and then came to New York and worked at Skadden Arps doing M and A M and A work for a number of years. Uh, liked the stimulation of being around you know people who are at the top of the legal profession there's a lot of smart people at Skadden but never wanted to be a lawyer and sort of stuck it out um, you know with the idea being that I, I felt like I was learning a lot and it was you know it was it was worth getting good at something uh, and not just being a kind of a quitter and, and taking an early retirement but uh, you know my best friend from law school uh, had become Peter Thiel's lawyer and he called, you know, he called me one day and he said, hey, do you want to come work with me uh, and ultimately take over as, as the general counsel for Peter, which I accepted, moved out to San Francisco and, and started working with Peter Thiel as his lawyer and soon thereafter kind of, you know, inherited a bunch of the other uh, operational, operational duties. And yes, as you were saying, one of the challenges was, you know, P Peter has, he's always been a champion of out of the box thinking and contrarian ideas and, you know, he, he has a he gives him he gives his employees a, a lot of rope, uh, you know. But at the same time, you know, he's also very cognizant about wanting to 
to, to run, uh, at least not run the ship off the, you know, the edge of the cliff. So, yeah, I, uh, I worked with um, guys like Drew who had crazy ideas, like maybe we should go invest outside the U.S., which is something no one in Silicon Valley was really thinking about. And, uh, you know, I wanted to both facilitate that, and, 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 uh, but not to anything crazy. And at some point, Drew came to me and I think had the wisdom to say, you know, well, what, if I, uh, what, I, what if I cut the legal department in on this a little bit? And uh, got the lawyer on my side. And so we partnered up. And you know, and and you know, with uh, with both uh, Drew's vision and my kind of execution ability, uh, you know, it was a combination that I think Peter was comfortable with, you know, letting us, you know, go out and explore. Mm-hmm. During your introduction to to the SeedCamp teams, you talk about how Peter Thiel's a third partner, um, and one of the things that's kind of interesting about both your your stories is the fact that you started having a very close relationship with him. Um, you working directly with him in some of the commercials and, and yourself in, in some of the legals. Um, how is it that the idea of, of, of sort of Valor as, as this sort of non-U.S., very contrarian in some ways, if you look at the way that some funds operate within a, uh, their certain zip code, how did that play out? How did that conversation go down? So we ended up uh, making our first investment in zero the accounting software company um, in late 2010, and really through 2011, we we didn't do a whole lot more to specifically further Valar as a strategy, but the company sort of exploded and was scaling extraordinarily well. I think that lit lit the idea for James and I that no one in our group was looking at companies that were outside of our home geography in any kind of systematic way. Um, but the forces behind you know, company creation are far more open and powerful than they had been even just five years before. So it made sense that if you could scale a multi-billion dollar SaaS company from Wellington, New Zealand, that this would be happening more or less everywhere. But the structure of most firms, and particularly large partnerships, are they make it really hard to look at these things in any systematic way. Mm. So while there's lots of interesting companies to look at around the world, there's even probably more back in Northern California. So the opportunity cost very, very high to go and look at these things. And then the organizational friction to convincing all your other partners and the legal department mm. and everyone else to go and do those deals is, is very high. So we thought if we could structure ourselves in a way that eliminated most of that friction and let us operate on sort of founder startup time, that we could actually have a sustainable advantage in finding companies at a fairly early stage and working with them to help them scale into multi-billion dollar opportunities that would sort of be sustainable and not really replicable by, by our competition. Uh, you have to have both a brand that's as strong as Peter's brand is globally, and you have to have the desire and structure to go and do deals outside of your home market. And those things don't tend to operate together, for the most part. But I mean, it's 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 not easy. I mean, you're, you're two guys, and clearly you have the capacity internally to, to be able to do a deal. But scaling up, deal sourcing, finding, flying, and then if the the company is you know in some jurisdiction that you're not familiar with you know you're a rock star lawyer but at the same time like there's a limit you know like you know german gmbhs are notable for 
for having their technical difficulties. How, how did that play out in terms of the thinking? Was it kind of like, well, we'll just see how it goes? Or is that something where you, you recommend companies to come to the U.S.? How, how, does, how does that larger strategy play out? And how, how, do you guys, um, how do you guys go and find companies? I mean, you have some companies in Brazil. And how, is that part of you, you go to them or they come to you? How does that play out? So, so you know, you don't want to uh, give away too many of your, of your secrets, but I think <laughs> I think one of the secrets is that it's not as hard as you, as you think it would be. That uh, if you're willing to get on a plane, you're willing to travel to these places multiple times. You know, there tends to be in each you know in each in each country in each major city a pretty tight tech community. And once you find one of these veins, you know, you can kind of quickly figure out who were, who are the sort of the smarter investors, who are the investors that are more Silicon Valley minded and, and as opposed to, you know, private equity minded, you know, the ones that have founder friendly terms versus, you know, these old, these old school kind of control terms, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you kind of find the right group in each community, in each community, you see CAP being one in London and Europe, but there's, you know, there's smart groups in all these geographies and, and you network it from there. And that's sort of the first step. The, the, the trick I think, and this goes back to what Drew was saying was, it's not enough to just hustle, to just be willing to get on planes. You also have to have kind of, you have to be bearing, you know, the right flag or have the right brand when you show up, right? So it's, it's you know, if, if you're a partner at Excel or Sequoia or one of Peter Thiel's groups, you can probably, you know, get in front of people pretty easily when you, when you go to these places. If you're just a couple of guys starting a venture fund by yourselves, it's very, very hard. But the combination of having you know Peter Till's backing and him as a partner and our willingness to hustle, you know that that's been kind of the the, the rare combination. Yeah. Cool. And and how how about you guys on a personal basis? Is there, you know, aside from the fact that the, the Valor strategy allows you to be able to go abroad? I mean, what what is your view? I mean, it, you have in your offices beautiful offices here in New York. You have some pictures of people jumping off uh, <laughs> rocks into what looks like a very uh, Caribbean or perhaps the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, what, what's your view on sort of international? Like, there's a lot of new ecosystems. Is there, is, do you have preferences that are all the same? Or do you, do you have places that you guys really see as up and coming? Over time, our view has evolved into there being sort of three distinct buckets of returns in venture. One, of course, is Northern California and the traditional home of venture. Two is the large closed markets like China and India. Maybe Russia's in there as well. And then three is a, a, an accumulation of mostly first world economies that are just one or two links away from Silicon Valley. And that's, you know, Stockholm, London, Sydney, New Zealand, places where you know, it, it is actually possible to scale up a company. There's a lot of seed funding available. There's a lot of growth stage financing available for companies that have gotten, say, you know, 50 or $80 million in revenue. Mm. But there's still probably a pretty big gap at the Series A through sort of late Series B stage, where you're still taking a lot of risk in the financing. Um, but there's probably some product market fit and some, some traction on the sales side. So, you know, I think we, we have decided that our greatest 
relative advantage is in, is in that that middle group that's you know probably has the least amount of capital from our competition looking at mm. at it, but uh, you know still offers probably if you if you took all the markets together, which is what we try to do, um, you know every bit as much opportunity as as you would find uh, in other other parts of the mm. business. And just to add to that, you know we're. We, we have refined the strategy over time. You know, initially we thought, well, you can start a big business anywhere. Maybe you're just the largest, uh, you know, I won't pick on any one geography, but maybe you're just the largest e-commerce player in a certain niche in a certain one country in the world. Hmm. And that, that can still be a multi-billion dollar business, so let's do that. But over time, what we've realized is the, what, we, what, we, what we should really be focused on are finding the global champions. So, you know, I like to say, you know, Skype, is the Skype for the whole world? It wasn't just the Skype for Sweden or Estonia or or, or Europe, and so we're we're looking for we're looking for the Skypes. Maybe they were were born in places outside of Silicon Valley and outside of the U.S., but they intend to target uh, this kind of first world global market in the open internet. Mm. Well, Skype's a good actually transition to uh, to telling your side of the story of Transferwise um, as. For the, for the audience, um, TransferWise is a joint investment between Valor and us and other uh, notable investors. And uh, they, they, they come from Estonia, where Skype's originally from, and, and the founders have roots uh, with those companies, as, as with PayPal. Um, and so it would be interesting to hear kind of the, the story of how you guys came to, to meet Tavit and Christo and, and, and the team. We saw that Max Levchin, <coughs> Peter's co-founder in PayPal, had invested in the seed round. Uh, and he was kind enough to make an introduction uh, to the founders for us. Uh, we basically, you know, sort of did our thing and got on a plane and flew to London a number of times and started to get to know the guys and thought that there was an interesting confluence of a few things that really made the story seem very powerful. You know, one is in financial technology. It is very hard to find a team that has the ability to write great software and has experience working with the large financial institutions and their systems. They, they tend to not coexist at the same time. And so Tavit's experience as an engineer at Skype and Christo's experience with large financial groups married very well together. There's also, you know, when we're looking at companies outside the US, there are some types of companies that work even better where they are because of some idiosyncrasies of history mm. than they would have worked in the US. So one example is Zero, the accounting software company probably had to start outside the US because no one was going to fund a QuickBooks competitor. Yeah. And TransferWise probably works particularly well from London because in the US international payments are pretty much all about remittances and that business is very well trod and very difficult, but you probably needed a corridor like pound euro in order to find a service that really was useful for folks like us or small businesses who had more high value um, <clears throat> international payments to make. Mm -hmm. So probably wasn't a company that was going to get started in the US. It really made sense for it to be a London company. And so the combination of the backgrounds of the founders, the fact that it was the right time, and they really had a 10x better product than the 99% market shareholder, which are all the retail banks. Mm -hmm. um, even though it was pretty early as an investment for us, 
it just it just made a lot of sense. And that was one of the few where James and I walked out of the first meeting and said, yeah, we, we really need to do what we can to, to win this one. Mm. And then, well, I mean, early, you, you used the word early, and I think that that's one of the words that a lot of founders just kind of hate hearing because it's like, oh, you're too early, come back when you got more traction. <laughs> oh, it's too early, come back for more traction. Actually, we had Fred Wilson come in, uh, and give a master class in, at our Seed Camp Week Berlin uh, last year, tail end of last year, and he was talking about how, you know, as a US VC, you kind of want to see some traction before you're really going to get on that plane and, and, and make that, that jump. And what, what, is, what is too early for you guys? I mean, you guys are in that position where you've stated up front your thesis is rest of world. And in some ways, you know, like the, the expectation there is, well, if, if, if a founder is perhaps a little further along in the journey that can afford to go to the valley, um, does that point, do they jump over you guys? Or is that something you guys find them first? How does that play out? What's too early? I think it depends on the type of company. So in TransferWise's case, the business model is very straightforward. And even though I think their revenue is in the low tens of thousands per month, mm. it's very straightforward how they were going to grow the network and how they were going to make money off of that. So it, it was, you know, what we're looking for is, is the marketing program repeatable? And, you know, is there a positive result from it? Um, and then what does the management team look like under the founders? So I think organizationally, you know, they were ready even though the revenue was still quite low. A company that uh, sells to small and medium businesses, we wait a little bit longer because the real hard trick there is the marketing again. So small business is very, very difficult to market to in a cost efficient way. It's just too heterogeneous a group for any one channel to dominate. Mm. And so we've waited until the ARR was, you know, in the low single digit millions before yeah. we make our investment there. Because depending on what they're doing, they may they may have it figured out and and our best uh our most efficient investment is when we they can take the brand name and all the sort of social proof that provides in terms of hiring and press and yeah. downstream investment and really accelerate what they're already doing well. Yeah. And so if if it's just too early for that to make a big difference in the growth curve of their business, it's somewhat dependent on each one. So it's you know hard to quantify what's too early and what's not. But I think you know James and I get a at least a qualitative sense of that pretty quickly once we're, you know, getting to know the company. Mm. And do you guys ever disagree? I mean, James, <laughs> I mean, like, it, it sounds... Like publicly? Uh, you know. And on podcasts? <laughs> Never. Never. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think this is something you made up, Drew, once, but... Or maybe I did. I can't remember anymore. We, we traveled too much together. But there, there's a, in order for a partnership to work, there's a certain amount of... Uh, sort of DNA or personality, there's probably a substantial amount that has to overlap, right? If you look at any great partnership, including a marriage, right? You, you, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that opposites attract and stay together for the long term. Yeah. So there's gotta be a lot that you probably have, you know, have you know, similar views on, you know, but, but it's not helpful to have group think. And if your partner is totally identical to you, there's no reason to have a partner, right? You just gave away 50% of the equity to someone that you didn't need because you have everything they have. So, you know, you always find some, uh, there's always going to be some areas of, uh, of disagreement. What, what we're, I think we're careful to do is where one of us feels very strongly 
that's that we should do something or that we shouldn't do something that gets a lot of deference and we tend to make the best decisions where we are both very aligned and you know you know very very both very decisive that something makes sense and I think yeah. the transfers maybe you mentioned this earlier you know you can you know you can you can talk about Drew all, all these reasons why we think that business made sense then and still be thinks still makes sense now it's yeah. a very powerful business but I think that's an example of we went to the meeting we met Tavit it was like seemed like a big space he was very smart they had a little bit of traction and we walked out of the meeting and said we should we, we need to do this deal and then there was of course a due diligence that you, that yeah. you follow up with and you kind of confirm your initial thinking yeah. but we tend to make the best decisions when we both have that kind of yeah, and, and Reshma and I, when, when we kind of go through the same decision process, it, it's similar. Um, and yet, in spite of that, we're, we're also different in the way that what mm-hmm. deals we approach, um, what kind of founders, uh, the, the sort of background of the founders that we relate to. And I guess to some extent, um, for, for just for the audience sake, like how, how do you guys differ in terms of sort of what kind of opportunities you guys gravitate towards for example if it's if it's uh, very enterprise if it's very consumer what, whatever is there a, is there a distinction where the two of you kind of know that the other person's really the better one to lead that deal because of that thing that he's really interested in or because of that one thing he feels really strongly about I, I think one of the constraints on having a small team that's looking at opportunities globally uh, is we, we couldn't have a model and we think it's a competitive badge that we don't have a model where I would sort of find something and do all the work on it and then bring it through and then crew would want to meet that same team and you know, this, this just takes too long and it's yeah. too many trips you know back and forth to Berlin or wherever and so we travel everywhere we take all the meetings together and I think probably the result of that is that we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about well you're the e-commerce guy and I'm the SaaS guy uh, I think that's my first cut of it I mean I don't, I don't know do you disagree with that? No not at all there, we there, there really is no lead in our partnership. We're doing it all together, and yeah. they're stuck with both of us afterwards. <laughs> um, you know, I, you know. I think there's individual sort of more micro like uh, interests, um, but I think they probably are not so much sector based. But you know, for example, the legal stuff is sort of more naturally mm. James's domain, and. You know, I have a payments background, so like those types of things, I get, you know, very interested in early on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I think there, there's sort of it, it tends to when we're working with a company's post investment, they get they get the best of both James and I, and, and hopefully the least of the worst of us. Yeah. Although well, we're certainly getting a lot of that as well. I always I always hear good things. So whatever you're doing, you're doing well. Well, look, to draw some different distinctions, though, having had a second to think about it, I think the area of overlap that we both have is we're, I think we're both very uh, interested in people and, we, you know, we, we tend to form the same opinions quickly about the, the team, and that's the area of overlap. Mm-hmm. Area, an area of differentiation, you know, I spent my career, you know, doing legal and operations, and I'm very execution-oriented, so a lot of times I'll run kind of the, the deal process some more than Drew. But on the other hand, Drew's lived in San Francisco for 15 years and was in, was in the tech business in a variety of capacities for many years. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to defer to him often on his thinking around where the industry is going, where the tech industry is, is, is moving. And so, you know, there, there are some areas of, of relative strength. Yeah. I think we both appreciate that the other partner, and so it kind of works. Yeah. And, and then, so how do you work with companies then? I mean, um, 
to, to some extent, you 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 leverage off of each other's strengths. Um, do you jointly work with companies at the board level? I mean, hey, you know, like go talk to James for that. Oh, go talk to Drew that. How how do you guys work? We attend all the meetings together. We we haven't taken any board seats today, although yeah. in our major investments we'll take observer seats. Yeah, but they get both of us, and um, we try to be very light in terms of our interaction or imposition on the uh, operations side of the company. But if if the topic is something that venture capitalists know about, like fundraising or capital strategy, you know, we're, we're taking all those calls together, all those meetings together. And, mm. um, you know, like I was saying, offering up hopefully the best of both of us. Yeah. It's, it's funny, though, because... You know, when you when you do the investment, you get we'll we'll, we'll get contractual contractually the right to have a, an observer yeah. in the board meetings, and then when the board meeting happens, the two of us show up, and I've always kind of the back of my back of my mind waited for a company to say, well, hold on a second, we gave you one observer right, we didn't give you two observer rights. No one's ever done that. You know, you're on the record, right? Every, every, everybody's <laughs> accepted somehow that we're a single brain, and that's the single observer right is the two of us. That's good. Actually, it's funny because uh, at Seed Camp, Reshma and I kind of operate in the same the same view uh, which helps also when we're traveling um, but I, I think because of this this sort of shared nature that you, you probably have a lot of anecdotes about things that have worked and haven't worked for founders coming from abroad so if, if you could sort of sort of summarize the the sort of wisdom into three recommendations for non-US founders that you think you know what if if you just did these three things I know that's kind of putting the bar really high. but In terms of fundraising or in terms of actually running their business? Well, both. I'll leave it open-ended. Um, things that you're like, you know what, like this would just, A, either help you fundraise faster or B, this would probably prevent you from having problems down the, the road, be it legal, be it copywriting, be it whatever it be. What are the things that you're like, damn, you know, if, if only more people knew these three things, life would be much easier. So from a fundraising standpoint, uh, they need to build access to capital years in advance and do it constantly. Too many people think of fundraising as a, you know, uh, a, a process that just happens every couple years when they need it to happen. But it really should be, especially for the CEO, a continual part of their job. And um, I, th I think that in San Francisco, this is part of the culture. But uh, for outside the U.S. VCs where they don't, in their home geography, necessarily have tons of VCs to talk to. They get into the habit of not thinking about it all the time when really they, they need to be considering it, the CEO at least, a major, major part of their daily, daily thought process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another thing, and this is kind of a, a, a work in process internally, this is part of a dialogue we were having earlier this week, Kind of along the same lines, which is, you know, we, we don't believe that you need to relocate from, you know, Serbia or wherever you are to Silicon Valley to build a very big business. There's so many examples now of the fact that you don't need to do that. So that that the, the fact that there are still VCs that basically say, well, we'll invest in you if you move to Menlo Park. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of crazy in this day and age. It's kind of it's more convenient for them, but doesn't it's not not really about the business. It's about yeah. the the investor's convenience. But what we were talking about earlier this week that relates is. I've started to wonder if maybe it does make sense at a much earlier stage to have, you know, a senior person who's located in New York or San Francisco from the beginning or spends a significant amount of time there. Maybe it's a business development type person from, from the early days 
who's building these these networks. I think the syndication risk, the risk that you get to, a, you know, you raise a Series A, it goes it goes pretty good. Maybe you're able to kind of raise a Series B. Maybe it's an internal round. But you know, when you get to sort of north of a hundred million dollar valuations, you're raising a Series C. You need to have multiple people around the table. You yeah. can't just go back to you know the same firm again and again. I, I I think that probably having some presence in the U.S. earlier for most of these companies makes sense. Yeah, earlier U.S. presence. Yeah. The last one. They should hire. They should think about hiring legal and financial management much faster than they ever think about it. This is like a hundred percent of companies. Right. Really, you, that sounds like a horror story behind that one. Well, there's, no, there's no, a no, battle. No, just, there's a battle that you fought there. <coughs> just like just like there's technical debt. Yeah. There's you know debt, particularly on the financial side, right? And so, as it relates to fundraising, when you run your process, investors take a lot of signal from how good you are at it. And if your numbers look like a mess, that is something that's very uh, obvious to investors because we're looking at them every day, many, many times a week. And if the legal process of completing a deal is also a mess and you seem very naive about it, that can prevent you from raising the critical round. How much on, the, on that last bit, how much do you guys get annoyed, maybe not personally, but as a representative of sort of the, the, the US VC scene, where there are existing investors in the company that are perhaps not as knowledgeable and, and, and can create some issues? Because I think one of the challenges some of the founders have, especially in the rest of the world, is they'll have people who put money in and, um, and have been part of that angel or family and friends round, but can sometimes not necessarily be the most helpful in subsequent rounds. Is that a warning sign for you guys, or is that something you, you, you generally feel like you, you help the founders overcome? How, how does that come across? So I'd add that it's happening less and less as time goes on, but we look at it as part of our value add to come in there on the side of the founders and remove whatever terms are not going to align us with management. So if there's participating preferred in the liquidation preference, if there are multiple liquidation preferences, if the veto rights of the preferred are too lengthy or too onerous, we try to use our brand and our leverage that we're coming in and leading the deal to scale a lot of that stuff back. There's so much to criticize about Silicon Valley, but I think the best thing that it's exported to the world is this framework for aligning the incentives of the founders and the investors. And so trying to use our weight um, when we're entering the company for the first time to align that stuff as much as possible, we think that compounds value for the company over subsequent rounds yeah. and as yeah. the company grows. Yeah, totally agree. And you know, one, one of the things that we've talked to Peter a number of times about is this idea that you know, the beginnings of things matter a lot. And sometimes things are just broken from the beginning. And one way that you can break your company from the beginning is to give up board control very early or to have the wrong board members on your board. Once someone's on the board, it's hard to get them off. And there's, there are great angels who are smart, who roll their sleeves up, who you know, live close to you in your geography, who, you know, who, are, who are wonderful. I'm not talking about those ones. And I'm not talking about you know, uh, the sophisticated uh, venture firms you know, in Europe and other places you find. So those, those, those guys are great. But, but, there are, but there have been instances 
which we won't go into, where there there has been dead weight on these boards, and you know, and they they may have a control some kind of controlling board stake. And so, like, what are we supposed to do? We come in, yeah. We say, well, we want to invest your company, but you need to, uh, you know, get all these people off your board. It's, 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 we're open to doing that where where it's needed to, but but the the founders have hurt themselves in the beginning and made it made it difficult to raise money from smart people. Mm. So I think I think it is, I think that is a big concern. Mm. Brazil. So we touched upon it a little bit earlier, and I, I noticed that obviously you have a few Brazilian investments. Um, you mentioned earlier that you have an interest in markets where the market itself is big enough, even though it's 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 not necessarily in, in it's in different states. You mentioned India, you mentioned China. Uh, and Brazil, um, how does that market compare in terms of what maybe the the, the listeners don't uh, know? How does it compare in terms of capital raising? Uh, how does it compare in terms of um, how the companies are structured? Do they do they stay as Brazilian companies or do they move to the U.S.? What what are the, the sort of the best practices for companies? Let's say in a country like Brazil, where you know, is it best to be uh, just reincorporated in the U.S. and then operate like a U.S. entity? Uh, for purposes of scaling and growing and fundraising in the U.S., but remain in, in Brazil, or and, and yeah. what are the challenges there? Yeah, I, th- I think maybe uh, I think maybe you misunderstood or, or we explained it wrong. So we're, we're not focused on what we think of as kind of uh, walled-off uh, economies. Mm-hmm. And so you know, we think there's enormous opportunity in China, but we're not the guys to go do it. You probably need to if you know if you want to succeed in China, you probably need to have you know boots on the ground, be helpful to speak Chinese, you know, Mandarin. Yeah. It's helpful probably to be married to someone who's you know senior in the in the Communist Party, et cetera, et cetera. So we offer none of that, and so we're not great for China. Yeah, uh, there are other firms that are doing that, and they you know people could definitely make money doing you know in, in China. Same, we think India is to a large extent similar. Brazil is kind of this interesting case where it's not necessarily walled off. There's some you know geopolitical risks and and, and some you know crazy tariffs and these things. Um, but you know you can more or less free, freely travel between here and there, yeah. uh, and capital can flow be, be, between the two. Uh, but it has what we tend to see from a place like Brazil are, are companies that are focused on Brazil, and we, you know we've made investments in some of those companies. They're doing well, we're supportive of them. But I think that our strategy, the sort of iteration on our strategy, has been let's focus on the companies that are from the beginning intend to scale globally. So you know. It, Brazilian companies were invested in. I think a lot of them are actually incorporated in Cayman Islands or BVI for mm-hmm. various tax reasons. Um, but in general, those are really Brazil-specific companies. They're not probably, uh, at least for many, many years, thinking about moving beyond the borders. Hmm. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, so we always end uh, the, the podcast with an opportunity for uh, each of you to uh, shamelessly plug anything you're really passionate about. Whether it be uh, anything personal, like cowboy boots, or uh, anything you know altruistic, or having to do with you know, family, whatever. Um, so, James, maybe you you want to go first. Yeah, this is this shameless to- plug. Totally, we only plug totally Valor. So you, can't, you can't do that. Uh, well, I'll, I'll jump in right, and, right. and 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 shamelessly plug the support of our families, particularly. Our wives and uh, and at least James's children are old enough to uh, to play a big role in that. We certainly can do all the traveling we're doing without, you know, Sasha and Cynthia really uh, really backing us up on it. So thanks, ladies, for being part of the team and making when you it when you listen to this. 
Yeah, we'll make sure they hear that part. <laughs> make sure they hear that part. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, as we're we're one brain, so I'm gonna just rest with Drew's answer. Yeah, I have no shameless plug. It's a no shameless plug. All right, cool. Well, thank you guys. Um, always a pleasure coming to visit you guys, and hopefully we'll see you again soon in London. Yeah, yeah, awesome. super. Thank you. Thank Bye. you.